down to earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we cover the toughest challenges with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You'll hear diverse views as we try to find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises. On the show today, buckle up as we go down to earth on the future of electric vehicles. Motoring journalist Geraldine Herbert tells us everything we need to know about EV technology. Chairperson of the Irish EV Owners Association, Simon Acton, and Renault's Jeremy Warnock will give us the buyer's and seller's perspective on the Irish electric vehicle market. ESB eCar's Niall Hogan joins us with the latest on Ireland's charging infrastructure. And the head of the Irish Defence Forces, Vice Admiral Mark Mellet, is my guest this week for My Green Life, where he'll give us surprising insight into how Ireland's Defence Forces are considering environmental issues. It's time to head down to earth. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. But now, with pollution from vehicle emissions rising every year in Ireland, it's time to find out if the Irish government's goal of having nearly one million electric vehicles on the road by 2030 is achievable or delusional. My first guest is the motoring journalist for the Sunday Independent, Geraldine Herbert. Geraldine is also the editor of Ireland's only website for women on wheels, wheelsforwomen.ie. Welcome, Geraldine. Good morning, Cara. Geraldine, you've reported that one in every five people who buy a car now in Ireland are buying one that at least isn't fully petrol or diesel powered. And in fact, Ireland and the EU are likely to ban the purchase of new petrol and diesel vehicles in 2030 due to things like climate change and air pollution. So can you take us through all the different alternatives to fossil fuel cars on the market right now? Okay, so yes, 20% of sales at the moment. Now, this is up from about 2% in 2016. So 20% are a combination of petrol, or sorry, of um, electric, hybrid, and plug-in hybrid. Now, the most popular, I suppose, at the moment is hybrid, um, followed by electric, and then um, plug-in hybrid. So the differences between the three are obviously electric, um, are they run exclusively on electricity. They don't use petrol or diesel. To run them, you plug them in. When they're fully charged, they give you a range, which is basically the distance you can travel between charges. Now, most of the modern electric cars, the new electric cars, do anything between 300 and 400 kilometres between charging. Some do even 450. So obviously the advantages of electric cars is, apart from the fact that they're zero emission and they're, they're much better for the environment, but they're also really, really cheap to run. They benefit from low servicing costs because there's very few moving parts in comparison to petrol and diesel, and they have low motor tax. But the downside is, car obviously, long journeys need careful planning because the network is very patchy, the charging network around the country. So and you also need because of that, you really do need access to off street um, parking or access to charging and work, ideally. So you can't really buy one and rely purely on the public charging network. So that is a downside of the electric cars. And what about the hybrids? Okay, hybrids are proving the most popular at the moment because they're probably the most simple to sort of transition from petrol and diesel into. So basically with those, you get an electric motor and a petrol engine. Now, they can't be charged directly. They charge when you're on the go. So as you're driving and when you're braking, you're charging that electric motor. Now, the the idea is the electric motor takes over at very low speeds, but then you're switching over to a petrol engine. So they do give better emissions are lower emissions and better fuel economy than a petrol car. They don't give hugely better because obviously it's only a small electric motor. It can only do so much. But obviously, you know, they're, they're a good stepping stone for people. You don't have to do anything with them. You know, you drive them exactly like a petrol or diesel car. So that's why I think they're proving... Um, they're, they're proving so popular. But as I said, they are petrol engines predominantly, so they don't give brilliant fuel economy if you're on motorways. So you have to be aware of that. My impression about the hybrid vehicles is that they're actually all the hassles of a combustion engine plus the added complexity of an electric engine. And so the maybe the maintenance costs might be higher. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, when you get into plug-in hybrids, which are exactly as they say, you can plug them in and charge that battery directly. Now, they have much bigger batteries than your than your regular hybrids. The benefit with them, though, is they can cover maybe 60 kilometres on purely electric mode. But as you say, you do have the hassle of going to your filling station and filling up your petrol engine and still having to plug it in at night to actually get the full benefits of it. So, you know, that's the thing. However, some people like that kind of halfway 
you know, world between hybrid and electric because they're getting the feel of what it's like to have a fully electric car. But yet they still have that, I suppose, reassurance of knowing that if they're on the motorway or they're on a long journey and they can't find a charging point, they do have a petrol engine to fall back on. So that's the thing with, I mean, you know, plug-in hybrids do have their benefits. The one thing I would say is if, if you get one, you have to have a commute that really suits it. So you have to be able to benefit from those 60 kilometers or whatever that do, that you can run on, on pure electric. Because once you start relying on the petrol engine, they're actually not as fuel efficient as your equivalent petrol car because you have that heavy battery to carry around. So you have to be careful with plug-in hybrids that you have the kind of driving commute that will suit them. You've written a lot about electric vehicles for the Sunday Independent and you've touted their superiority to traditional petrol and diesel vehicles. Why do you think they're actually better cars than the traditional internal combustion engine? I think for two reasons, Carol, more than anything. Number one, they're much more efficient um, in terms of energy and um, when compared to petrol and diesel, but also they're just a much simpler powertrain. I mean, as I said, they have much less moving parts, so therefore maintenance is less frequent, it's less expensive. So they're just a much simpler car. So in that sense, they're much more superior. As a small island, you would think that we would have huge potential here in Ireland for electric cars, especially given that we have partial ownership of our electric electrical supply and a mild climate and no big mountain ranges to climb like the Alps, yet electric vehicles still only represented about 2% of new car sales in 2020. So what do you think have been the main obstacles to EV uptake here? Yeah, I think the big problem still, um, Cara, is the purchase price. I mean, affordability is extremely important for consumers when they're making those choices. And while there's more and more EVs coming on stream and they're better priced, you still pay quite a premium for an electric car so in comparison to the equivalent petrol and diesel. So that is, you know, you're asking people to invest quite heavily in a car. Yes, they're much cheaper to run. So you need to look at the total cost of ownership. And when you do the maths, it will work out. But you may have to look four or five years ahead to actually balance that. So I think that is the key thing at the moment is the price. And we know that from Norway, when you see that, you know, up to 70% of new cars bought there are electric because the Norwegians have obviously much more resources than we do. And they heavily penalise petrol and diesel cars and they very generously subsidise electric cars. So as a result, when you go into a car dealership, you know, your petrol, your diesel and your electric car will all be priced very similarly. And then when you look at the running costs of electric cars, they're actually cheaper to own and to, to run. So therefore, it makes no sense not to go electric. But we're a long way away from there, um, Cara. So even with the current grant, which I think is around €5,000 on the car, plus the rebate on a, on a home charger that currently exists, even with all those perks, how much more expensive is an electric vehicle compared to its diesel or petrol counterpart? OK, well, at the moment, there's nearly 10,000 because you get 5,000 off the VRT and you get a grant from the SEAI of 5,000. But even so, for like, I'll give you two examples. If you go to look at a Hyundai Kona, now they're small little crossovers. They're available in petrol, diesel and electric. The petrol will cost 21, the diesel will cost 23 and the electric will cost 38. So if you're looking at exactly, you're literally looking at exactly the same car from the exterior. That is a lot of money you know, to pay. Now, the smaller, say, a smaller car would be a Peugeot 208. Again, it's available in all three. But the petrol is 19,000. The electric is 27,000. So again, it's a really, really high premium over the petrol and diesel equivalent that Irish buyers have to pay. That gets really hard to justify. Do you think that that, that gets kind of paid back based on the lower pr- price of electricity compared to petrol and diesel? Oh, it doesn't mean there's no doubt about it. The ESB reckon if you're driving something, say, the equivalent size of a Nissan Leaf, an electric car, you can cover about 300 kilometres a week on four four euros of electricity. That's all it'll cost you. I mean, that's nothing. I would... uh, guess that the equivalent petrol will probably cost you about 21 euros a week and maybe a diesel will cost you about 24. So, I mean, there's huge gains. There's no doubt about that. And as I said, because there's fewer um, moving parts, the servicing costs are lower. But still, Cara, you know, you you have to do it. You would have to do a lot of mileage to justify that initial spend. And I think that is the big problem. Now, analysts, you know, I do are very optimistic about the cost of electric cars coming down substantially over the next two to three years. It's all about really getting battery the cost of batteries down because that is the biggest component in the um, the price at the moment. But until we get to that price parity and we really have to get to that organically rather than, you know, through subsidising by the government because we just don't have those sort of resources in Ireland at the moment to spend on electric cars. But until we get there, I think, you know, people do have to make that kind of leap of faith of sort of investing heavily now in the hope of recouping it over a couple of years. 
range anxiety is uh, something that people mention as a big fear about buying an electric vehicle, this idea, the idea that you might run out of range or battery on your journey. Do you think this fear is justified based on the electric vehicles on the market today? Well, as I said, most electric cars, now new ones, do at least 300 kilometres. That's about the extent of most people's seven-day commute. That is what, you know, the CSO reckon in terms of the last travel survey. So that's going to work on a five-day a week. I mean, most people are not doing that anymore. And even their weekend sort of commute, you would be able to do it on a single charge. But I think the problem is, is the, the public network. People need to see a well-maintained, well-signposted and easily accessible network. And they just don't see that at the moment. And they need the reassurance that if they went out and bought an electric car, that there are charging points that they can use, that they know about them. And it's interesting, actually, the SEAI did a survey on this last year and they found that 82% of people overestimated how long it took to charge a car, an electric car, and 48% didn't have a notion where their nearest charging point is. So really, it's not the cars that are in terms of range. It's really infrastructure anxiety at this stage that is is the big problem with electric cars. And it sounds like education is a big problem, too. You mentioned Norway earlier, and they're always held up as the poster child for electric vehicle uptake. What have they gotten right that we haven't yet in Ireland? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. They, I mean, they are the leading lights in all of this. And they have gone, as I said, up to, I think it's in Oslo, 70% of new cars bought are electric. And I think the country and um, sort of nationwide, it's about 60, 65%. And they did have a host of generous subsidies when they... Um, um, and incentives when they first started encouraging people to buy electric cars, you could drive in bus lanes, there were free tolls, there was free street parking. Now, they have rolled back a lot of those because essentially what has happened, they're, they're now, they've now made it more attractive to drive an electric car than to use public transport. So, you know, that that's not a policy you really want to implement. But in terms of just getting people into electric cars, they've been hugely successful. But I mean, the key thing has, Cara, has been the price. It's that idea. And I mean, a good example of that is when Tesla came into Norway, it was a game changer. When Tesla came to Ireland, basically nothing happened because the Model S and the Model X were so expensive. They just, they didn't even figure in terms of car sales. We had to wait until the Model 3 came in, the sort of affordable Tesla to really make an impact on the market. Whereas the introduction of the very expensive Model S in Norway, as I said, was the game changer. So it just shows it's a totally different market to Ireland. Geraldine Herbert, motoring journalist for the Sunday Independent. Thank you so much for joining us here on Down to Earth. You're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. So why are we playing Drive My Car by the Beatles? Well, we've heard from my previous guests how much better electric vehicles are to drive from a technological view. But my next guests are here to give us both the buyer and seller's perspective on the Irish electric vehicle market. Simon Acton is the chairperson of the Irish EV Owners Association. And Jeremy Warnock is Renault Ireland's product manager. Good evening, Simon and Jeremy. Good evening, Cara. Jeremy, I bought my first and only electric vehicle from you in 2018, a lovely Renault Zoe, a black one. And I don't know if you remember me calling you soon after I bought it in tears on my first road trip from Bray to Kerry with a six-year-old in the back because it took me nine hours to do what was normally a four-hour trip. And you very patiently explained to me that my driving and my trip planning had to completely change as an EV owner. And I've stuck to that advice ever since. And my journeys, thankfully, have gotten much shorter. But I think it's worth you explaining to listeners who might be in the market for an EV What's so different about driving an electric vehicle? Well, Cara, I certainly do uh, remember those those phone calls, all right, and uh, the frantic WhatsApp messages. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's an interesting one because, you know, driving an electric car on a long journey requires a bit of planning uh, and a bit of adaptation. But I suppose the thing is that, A, even in the last couple of years since you bought your Zoe, technology's moved on a bit more again. And also, uh, once you adapt your driving style, as you discovered, uh, it becomes an awful lot easier. But for me, I think the most striking thing is that those longer trips are, are not the norm. Most people do their daily driving well within the sort of 395 kilometer range of a, of a Renault Zoe. So what you really find is that what you notice is the silence, the really strong acceleration that an electric car has, the handling from the fact that the batteries uh you know, low down, the center of gravity is, is low. 
things like the fact that you never have to visit a petrol station. You know, you plug in at home in the evening. In my case, before lockdown, it was only two or three times a week, depending on what I was doing. Yeah, it is a much more comfortable driving experience. But for road trips, what do I need to do in terms of planning a long distance trip that might be different than if I could just go to a petrol station? I suppose the things to clarify really are, are first of all, what you think of as a long distance trip. It's longer than you would think. For example, I live in Dublin. My parents live in Galway. In the new Zoe, I can get to my parents' house without stopping anywhere. Uh, And if I can plug in overnight there, then I'm good to go back the next morning. If you are on a slightly longer road trip, one is that speed is the enemy of range. So you do have to keep your speed down fractionally over 100 kilometers an hour so that you're not uh, dicing with the trucks in the inside lane. That will be enough to make sure your range is pretty decent. The other thing is just to know where the fast chargers are on your route and the ESB eCars app is great for that, as is another app called ZapMap. And what I find, I've been to Galway and back a few times during the summer in 2020 when we were allowed to travel outside the county. I've done Galway and back in a day. And what typically that would involve if I can't charge at at the Galway end is two sort of 20-minute coffee stops, one on the way down and one on the way back. Really, it's just understanding the way the car performs keeping an eye on your speed and knowing where you're going to charge. Simon, there's clearly a learning curve for new EV owners and the Irish EV Owners Association is very focused on educating people about electric vehicles. What are some common misconceptions among people who probably are suited to owning an EV yet feel that they aren't? Yeah, I guess common misconceptions would be, um, as Jeremy has said there, around range um, in particular, also affordability I think is is another thing as well. Jeremy's talked about the range side of things so maybe we can talk about affordability there for a minute. Um, Obviously if you're buying a new EV then they are at the moment uh, for the time being at least somewhat more expensive than maybe an equivalent petrol or diesel model but there are grants available if you buy a new car from the SEAI, which are, which are very generous, which certainly helps a lot towards um, that cost. But what often isn't portrayed is a really strong used EV market. So you can get into a pretty decent EV for, for under 10000 for example. And then once you've bought that car, your running costs are very minimal. And especially if you're able to charge at home overnight, you know, you can charge these cars up for two or three euro. For myself, uh, for example, I might do that only once or twice a week. So, yeah, I suppose those would those would be the main things. Um, And I think the other thing to consider is there's always a big focus in these discussions around charging infrastructure. But for someone like me who doesn't do a huge amount of mileage and stays within the range of the vehicle almost every day, the only place I, I pretty much ever charge is at home. So it re- requires a bit of a, a paradigm shift in people's thinking when they're going to change to driving an EV. Um, and that, that definitely helps. You mentioned the secondhand EV market, and you're also managing director of an EV car dealership, Next Eco Car. I always assumed that with EV technology changing so quickly, that secondhand EVs wouldn't hold their value. But your company's seeing the opposite. So what is the secondhand market What's it been like in Ireland over the past couple of years? Yeah, I suppose I started my business about it's about three and a half years ago now. And I would say whilst certain EV models saw fairly sort of standard depreciation over the early years of their life, the used values have held up pretty well. I'm in a lucky position where, you know, some of my clusters are coming back for a second time round at this point, And I've been asked to actually take in some of the cars that I maybe sold three years ago. There's still great value in those vehicles, like any car, so long as they've been looked after and maintained properly. So it isn't the case that if you, you now own, say, a five-year-old EV, that it has no value. Some of those, whilst a lot of those cars would be shorter range cars with, you know, maybe... 100 or 150 kilometers of range most people don't drive that amount during the day so it's still a perfectly usable car and a a perfectly good car for people that aren't doing huge mileage every day which is the vast majority of people. Jeremy do you think that the changes to VRT that are coming this year will have a similar impact on EV sales as we saw with the changes to uh, diesel VRT taxes back in 2007-2008? I think Probably that the changes that the the 
latest VRT changes will, will make the difference they'll make is going to be relatively limited. The main difference is, is in the incentives. So in terms of VRT changes, um, electric vehicles haven't, haven't gone up or down by a huge amount. Uh, and the most efficient petrol and diesel vehicles are, you know, they're still relatively affordable. So, so the VRT changes haven't made a huge difference there. Um, where EVs benefit uh, is in the grants and the VRT relief, which which haven't changed significantly, certainly at the lower to mid price end of the market. Um, you know, and as as Simon said earlier, the incentives are very generous. They they really do support uh, private buyers particularly well. What incentives um, do you think, Jeremy, need to happen to get more people to buy electric vehicles? I think, I think as I, as I, as we said that the incentives for um, for private buyers are pretty strong. Um, I think it was a real mistake to take the SEAI grant away from companies uh, a couple of years ago. Um, it, it's really excluding a huge uh, section of the market, and uh, it means a few things. It means that the leasing rates on on, on electric vehicles are very high for for company cars, which really suppresses the market quite badly. Uh, it also means that rental fleets and, and even car sharing fleets uh, are just aren't able to look at EVs as, as a viable inclusion, uh, which is a real shame because that's for a lot of people, the first time they get to experience a car is when they use it on something like GoCar or, or they just rent it from, from, you know, when they're on holiday or something like that. So, you know, it's denying people an opportunity to try out an EV at, at you know, very little personal investment. Simon, with 17,000 electric vehicles on the road in Ireland today, do you see us coming anywhere near the goal of having nearly a million electric vehicles on the road by 2030? I think the that that figure, which was put out by Richard Britton now about two or three years ago, I you know, obviously it's been talked about a lot. Um, I think what's important is not the number as such, but more the the ambition and the the policy that is behind that ambition to you know to to drive um, people into you know thinking about moving to an electric car. Um, I I would like to think that as the, this decade progresses, we will see a big switch over. Um, it, you know, we're already seeing. Last year, albeit in a, a very difficult market, uh, considering COVID going on and everything else, we saw a big percentage upswing in in electric vehicles, and I think we'll we'll continue to see that um, as we get out the other side of uh, of the pandemic. And you know, if you look at what the manufacturers are producing, um, and obviously Jeremy's talks about Renault, but the vast majority of other manufacturers are focusing their development efforts on electric vehicles and people ultimately will only be able to buy new what the manufacturers are producing. So I think certainly when we get to 2025 and belong and, and beyond, we're going to see, you know, big percentages of people buying electric as new vehicles, whether that takes us two or close to a million uh, is doubtful. But I think, you know, taking that figure in isolation and saying, ah, sure, that isn't going to happen isn't really the right way to look at it, I think. I think we're going to see very strong uptake as this decade progresses. Well, you heard it here first. A tipping point for electric vehicles in Ireland is coming soon. My thanks to Simon Acton and Jeremy Warnock for contributing to this episode of Down to Earth. Up next, we'll find out whether Ireland's charging infrastructure is up to the challenge of providing for those electric vehicles. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Just a reminder that in a few minutes, we'll be talking to Vice Admiral Mark Mellet about his green life, where he'll give us his ideas for a greener Ireland. We've heard from our previous guests just how fast electric vehicle technology is advancing, but with a whole new type of infrastructure required to make this transition, is Ireland up for the challenge? Well, my next guest, Niall Hogan, is here to give us the answer as head of ESB eCars. Welcome to the show, Niall. 
Thanks, Kara. Thanks for having me on the show. Niall, we've heard from all of our previous guests that the perception of inadequate charging infrastructure is at least partly to blame for a slow uptake of electric vehicles. What is the current level of coverage of charging infrastructure in Ireland? So ESB's public EV charging network, it was designed from the beginning to give widespread geographic coverage with, with a majority of towns getting at least one charger. And ESB has more than 1,100 charge points across the island of Ireland. So we're currently investing 20 million with support from the Irish government's Climate Action Fund in renewing and improving the original network so we can support drivers in making that change. And it's been possible to extend the reach and the range of the network for EV drivers through partnerships separate to the Climate Action Fund programme. So in 2020, we worked with Tesco to add new charges at nearly 50 of their store locations around the country. And I'm happy to say we've actually made great progress in our program to renew the network, to have more and more fast charging options, to improve the reliability of the network, to introduce payment models that would be affordable and would encourage maximum use of the network for as many drivers as possible. I was looking at the ESB eCars charging map last night and it looked like there's about 1,100 chargers on the network right now. Would that be correct? Yeah, 1,100 charge points. Yeah, and we've made a lot of progress over the last 18 months now in improving that network. Yeah, now 127 of those were in the Dublin area, while Limerick had about 31 and Galway had about 16. And I get, of course, there's a much bigger population in Dublin. But the journeys in the rest of the country, they tend to be longer and the driving speeds tend to be higher, which puts added pressure on EV range. So is there a Dublin bias on charging infrastructure that's maybe preventing electric vehicle uptake in the rest of the country when actually rural drivers would be ideal for electric vehicles? Well, as you say, a lot, a lot of the advantage that rural drivers, not all, would have is that they have access to home charging to be able to install it. And that's added to the range of the vehicles, meaning that the reliance on a public infrastructure isn't necessarily as high as it was before. But we do know that, you know, as I said, we have a geographic coverage that covers it across the country. And we know that, you know, as you refer to, a lot of drivers want more faster charging options. So we've improved the number of fast charging options. We've focused on national routes and regional towns. So, for instance, there are now 17 new fast charging options, of which 16 of those are in regional locations. So from Sligo to Tullamore, Drogheda, Dundalk, Cavan, Kells, Kilkenny, Clamell, Dungarvan, Tralee, um, Ballina and Clifton. So that's over the last 18 months. So that spread out and... Uh, increase in fast charging options. By the time we've finished, we'll have 50 such locations uh, when our program is completed. You mentioned uh, that there, it's important to have access to home charging. And it, it, this is a problem in Dublin. The 2017 Dublin Transport Survey showed that 66% of car owners in the city do not park in a driveway. So they would be dependent on public charging infrastructure. And I've also heard of apartment dwellers, for example, that can't get chargers in their apartment buildings. Will ESB be looking at things like lamppost chargers or other options to allow the majority of car owners in urban centers like Dublin who maybe don't have a driveway and don't have a home charger to go electric? Well, I suppose ESB eCars uh, mandate is really around public charging infrastructure. So our 20 million investment is to have a mix of on-street chargers and public chargers on you know, high-speed routes, national motorways, regional towns, regional locations as well. So we're not really in the domestic uh, space there in terms of the, the charging space. But one of the things that we do see in urban locations is that there were you know, when you combine the size of the battery uh, and how that's increasing the, the ability to, to or, or reduce the requirement to refuel on a regular basis. And when you look at uh, the availability of multi-site charging hubs that we we're talking about, um, you can have something that's closer to a petrol forecourt experience. So in some of the bigger locations, we think, look, it'll be like the way people traditionally fuel their cars, which is they don't necessarily go every day every second day they go maybe once a week or once a fortnight and that aligns with the kind of driving patterns where people uh, you know use it for smaller journeys when you combine that with the people who have the option to charge at home as a lot of people do and when you combine that with things like workplace charging where some companies are to the fore and offering that for their employees and destination charging in places like uh, supermarkets or hotels or cinemas uh, and the tesco example i suppose is one of that where we uh, charges in 50 locations across the country. There will be a wide range, there'll be a much more layered infrastructure of charging available to people. 
We had uh, Dr. David Conley on episode two of Down to Earth discussing Ireland's energy transition, and he said one of the things he left out in his 2014 analysis was the prospect of electric roads to facilitate on-the-go charging, and this is something that is already being used in countries like Sweden. Is there any hope for any similar technology that would allow rapid charging on the go like that? Well, I suppose what, what our program will do is we'll have uh, 50, so we'll have, in addition to the 50 fast charging locations, we'll have another uh, 50 locations with high power charging, and they will be anything from three vehicles to eight vehicles. So for instance, we've got already on, and we focused on motorway locations, we've now uh, four new sites in the last 12 months at Parkery and Kells and Galway uh, on the M6 at Port Leash on the M7 or the M8 and the M9. So at those locations, there's a mix of a fast charge and a high power charging and you can, uh, three vehicles can charge simultaneously. At that. We have another seven of those uh, in the construction of planning stage and several of those will open within the next month. And then we've also started site works on a super hub at Junction 14 in Kilcullen, or sorry, in Mayfield on the M7. And that'll be commissioned. So, so when you, by the time that's all finished, uh, what you'll have is uh, a network of fast and high power charging, which will cover all of the, the primary routes and national routes across the country. Niall, as an EV driver myself, I have to admit that road trips before COVID restrictions were pretty stressful for me. I was never sure if chargers would work or if they'd be in use when I arrived, or worst of all, and this happened a lot, that a petrol car would be parked in a spot and blocking usage. So is the ESB doing anything to address the reliability of the network for those issues so that customers have can have confidence in it when they're going on trips? Yeah, we've done a huge amount, and I have to say, like our 2019 network renewable renewal program gave first priority to the EV fast charge network because that gave the earliest benefit to the largest number of drivers, and as you say, people doing the, the longer trips. So since then, our fast charge network has been available or in use 98% of the time, and we then extended the network renewal program to the on-street charger network because when we did that, we wanted to prioritise the older and more troublesome chargers. And we wanted to do that while also making improvements, as you say, across the country. So since early 2020, the standard charge network has been available or in use 96% of the time. We've replaced already 187 of those on-street chargers. They've got new branding, so they're highly visible and there's new installs in every county. So uh, as an EV driver myself, I know from first-hand experience the importance of what that network is to, to drivers and as a team we aren't complacent. But that being said, there has been significant progress in improving the reliability of the network. And drivers I, do see it. I'm really glad to hear you're also an early adopter and, and, and struggling with the same challenges, perhaps. One really noticeable charge in 2020 was that ESB cars began charging fees for use. And it's actually the only time I've ever seen people who were used to getting something for free actually happy about being charged because they thought it might improve the situation. So how do you expect that the, the fees will actually change behavior? And is there possibly a risk that it might discourage people who were thinking about buying electric? vehicles from actually doing so? Yeah, well, as you say, ESB, and as you point out, the overall majority of drivers wanted payment models and wanted payment models that would be affordable and would encourage the maximum use of the network for as many drivers as possible, while also being able to support the ongoing investment. So what we did in ESB is we introduced pay-for-use, but we did it on a phase basis. We had a choice of payment models. We started with payment for use of the fast charging network in November 2019. We moved to extend that to the standard charging network in August 2020 and the high-powered at the, at the end of last year. So in all cases, it was aligned to investment and to visible improvements in the network and the reliability of the network. And it, the pricing is competitive. So I suppose that's the, the thing to, to take your point there. Pricing is competitive and it offers significant savings compared to fueling your car with petrol or diesel. So... Yeah, it's, re it's really clear that there's a huge cost savings in going electric. Do you, do you know what the difference is between buying a petrol or diesel car to go the same distance compared to using electricity? So if you take, um, like if, if like most drivers, you do most of your charging at home, so you'll have a mix of, you know, the typical international experiences, you might do 85% of your charging at home and 15% when you're out and about or doing longer journeys or when it suits you. If, you're, if you've got that pattern of driving, you can have savings of over 65% in fueling your car compared to fueling it using petrol or diesel. But even if you use DSB's public charging network for all your fueling needs, and we recognize that there are people in that situation, 
we still reckon that you'd still save between 25 and 33% of the cost of fuel compared to petrol or diesel. And if you looked on the ESB website, there's, there's calculators and SEII and others will do that to be able to, to make it. So there's significant savings uh, for running a, uh, an electric vehicle. It's clear that private vehicles are a relatively inefficient way to move people. And there's much more investment happening now in public transport and active transport options around the country. To what extent is ESB engaging in electrifying other modes of transport above private vehicles? So I suppose on the, on the private vehicle front, that's, that's our primary route. But we have experience as well of how that extends into commercial vehicles. So, for example, in, in London, where we also have EV charging networks, uh, one of our biggest customers is the taxi fleet as well. So they, you know, their taxi drivers, the black cabs are converting to electric. And we're also seeing this uh, drive sharing, car sharing is another big customer as well. So it, it facilitates that as well. There are a number of customers with light commercial vehicles as well that are using the, the charging network. And there are areas like bus transport as well, where ESP are involved with the Crown Plaza Hotel in an electric bus. And we'd see that, you know, that option will extend. So more and more of transport will become electric. My thanks to ESB eCars, Niall Hogan, for explaining the ins and outs of Ireland's EV charging network to us on Down to Earth. Stay tuned as coming up next, Vice Admiral Mark Mellett, head of the Irish Defence Forces, will be telling me about his green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. Today, I'm joined by the head of the Irish Defence Forces, Vice Admiral Mark Mellett. Welcome, Mark. Thanks very much, Cara. It's great to be here. Mark, most listeners will know you as the first non-army officer to head the Irish Defence Forces, but you started your career as a naval diver, I understand. And along the way, you developed a strong interest in ocean ecosystems and how they're managed. So can you tell me how you developed this interest? Yeah, well, actually, I started my career as a reservist in the Army in in the 5th Motor Squadron in the west of Ireland. But Rolled on a number of years. I joined the Navy in 1976 and um, in the late 90s I was over in the US Naval War College and um, we did a lot of study in security but one of my areas of interest was ocean governance and I was um, instructed by Professor Lawrence Judah at that time and Lawrence was from University of Rhode Island and he really brought me to a point whereby there was a a great interest in the whole area of integrated ocean management. I'd never looked at it from the point of view of being an ecosystem. It was just fascinating to see the variety of ecosystems that were there. Uh, at that stage, I began to look at uh, a deep water, uh, vulnerable marine ecosystem called cold water coral. And you know, few people realise that we have this massive resource, of, for instance, off the West Coast, as rich as the Great Barrier Reef, except it's 600 metres below the sea and you don't see it. And I studied that with a, a doctor in Galway called Anthony Grehan. And I went on then to work with him on the whole area of special areas of conservation to protect these very vulnerable marine ecosystems. And subsequently I went on and did my PhD in this. And my whole question was, who owns biodiversity? And if you don't put a value on it, uh, it actually is subject to Gareth Hardin's famous tragedy of the commons, where it's actually, it's actually exploited to the point where it's destroyed. And much of our cold water coral reefs have been destroyed as well as a lot of uh, vulnerable fisheries, such as orange ruffy, which uh, I also had an interest in. I don't know if you're aware, orange ruffy that are being caught up to recently. Some of those fish were still swimming, alive. The same species, same individual fish, were alive when Darwin was on the Beagle, you know, theorising on the evolution of mankind. They live to be over 200 years, and it's extraordinary to see that fisheries now is, is more or less wiped, off, wiped out off our west coast. And how are the orange ruffy in danger of being threatened? Well, they're, they're gone. Uh, effectively, there is no uh, ruffy fisheries anymore. So instead of it being a sustainable fisheries, it is in fact a, a mining industry. So um, tragically, we, we're not landing orange ruffy anymore. I was reading about orange ruffy actually before the show, and, and they don't start breeding until they're about 30 years 30, old. That's exactly correct. And they, 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 they actually show on above the sea mounts, which are kind of carbon mounts that are on the break, the continental break, where the, 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 I suppose the continental shelf goes from about 200 metres down to thousands of metres. And you have these massive sea mounts. And on top of these are very rich ecosystems of cold water coral. And sitting above them in the shoal is the, is the shoal of orange ruffy. 
and techniques in the past have been to land the deepwater trawl on top of the seamount, destroy the coral reef. And the coral reef could take up to 8,000 years to form, but it could be destroyed in 30 seconds. So it's the deepwater trawling that's actually destroying the ecosystems of the Orange Ruffy that's yes. then threatening them. No, thankfully there have been put in place special areas of conservation to actually protect uh, remaining areas of cold water coral and they're currently being exercised. And in fact, our defence forces through our naval service police these on behalf of the Sea Fishery Protection Authority. Global fish stocks are being threatened around the world and presumably also here in Ireland. What do you think we should be doing more of to try and protect fisheries? Well, I think there's a general requirement to move towards larger marine protected areas. And I know there is a policy drive on that side. And I suppose if I had a comment, uh, no-take zones are the, the best from the point of view of, um, I suppose, enforcement. You can put a geofence or an electronic fence around it, and then you can actually manage it much more easily. Um, you know, if you, if you open up a no-take zone, it's very difficult to, to enforce and to police. So I, I do know there is an interest in, in moving in the direction of marine protected areas, and, and that, I think, would be good. Because these would become refuge in large areas in terms of... Uh, areas where you'd have spillover on the edges of marine protected areas where you, you could have sustainable fisheries. But I think there is a requirement to move along on marine protected areas and I know the government is considering that. You've talked about big data and technology as facilitators in, in monitoring these things and enforcing. Do you think that there's an opportunity for the Navy to police this stuff more effectively through technology? Well, there is, yeah. And I think that in, in due course, we're going to see automation and you're going to see areas like uh, data itself, algorithms, um, analytics being used to actually identify um, where we need to be enforcing most. And in fact, over the decades, the Naval Service has built up a huge raft of data through its vessel monitoring system. And and we, we, we do know now where the sensitive habitats are with regards to regeneration of particular stocks. So we can focus our attention on where the vulnerable fisheries are at particular times, where they're spawning. And, and, and we do that working with the Sea Fishery Protection Authority. So that is part of our, our modus operandi. But I suppose looking to the future, if, if, if I was to say one thing that I suppose mankind has, it has extraordinary intelligence, extraordinary access to technology. And if we are to deal with issues such as climate change, this is where the opportunity is to leverage this technology and leverage this brain power and intelligence to actually make the right decisions, which are critical at this point. We're, we're very close to, to uh, irreversible tipping points and it is a concern. You've spent your life on the sea, including growing up in, in Mayo. Are you worried at all about what's happening to the ocean with regards to its chemistry and the changes that you've seen? Yeah, I, I suppose, to put it frankly, we as a species would not be alive today were it not for the ocean. And, and people step back and say, what do you mean by that? The, 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 the most CO2 that we produce is absorbed by the sea. About 30, a third of the CO2 we produce is pr- absorbed by the sea. Another 50% more or less stays in the atmosphere and about 20% is absorbed by terrestrial, terrestrial ecosystems. So the, the, the ocean is actually absorbing a huge amount of this carbon. But the downside is that the actual uh, ocean is becoming more acidic. And when I go back to my vulnerable marine ecosystem of cold water coral, that's threatened, as are species of fish being threatened by acidic uh, levels rising in the ocean. The second point is, I think the very reason we may well survive as a species is because of the ocean. Because when you look at it in the context of the potential on renewable energy from the marine, it's extraordinary. And I'm really delighted to see the government is moving with its plans for up to 5 gigawatts by 2030 of, of uh, marine renewable energy. And that'd be predominantly fixed and floating wind. And also with ambitions up to 30 gigawatts uh, after 2030. And that'll be fixed again, uh, wind, solar and floating wind, also with the potential of, of wave energy. And when we move to wave energy, it is extraordinary what could happen. You have the potential of a wave energy device with one square metre of energy device producing up to three or four hundred times the same as a wind energy device. So Ireland will become a battery for Europe if this all moves according to plan. And I think uh, parallel to that, you have the new grid lines and the interconnectors in terms of Celtic Link, I think it's and Greenlink across the UK and to mainland Europe. That means we can feed the energy we produce in our marine into Europe and not only just generate our own energy requirements, but also generate energy for our neighbours. You're listening to Down to Earth. My guest is Vice Admiral Mark Mellett. Mark, you've mentioned that the Defence Forces have been involved in things like on offshore renewable energy. And I was also reading that in 2015, uh, one of your Navy ships prototyped a smart kite to increase their speed and generate wind energy. Can you explain a bit how that technology works? 
Yeah, well, there, there is a, in fact, there's a company called SkySails that have been developing a technology around SkySails, and these are large kites, and they use a, a, a system whereby they can increase the energy potential from the kite that actually can give up to um, two megawatts of power. Now, two megawatts of power on, on one of our mother ships at the moment would give us up to about eight knots. So the Aeolus project was built around the idea, well, what if you had that kite who was able to give you a propulsion and then you were to put a sensor platform into the kite, you could turn, a, let's say, a, a tactical ship into a capital ship and you could put synthetic aperture radar, a wireless connection, uh, over the rising communication system. And we've done all that. And we worked with Cork Institute of Technology through a cluster we had at the time, the Irish Maritime and Energy Resource Cluster. And this this was extraordinary. SEAI, the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, uh, Enterprise Ireland, all backed this project and brought it to a proof of concept. And now there is a, a company looking at the, the possibility of that technology rolling out. We don't have kite sails yet on our, on any of our ships. Uh, the, 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 I suppose the technology is still in development, when the time is right, and I think at a future point, this type of technology will come in where you will see ships with kite-type technology. Do you think our nine Navy vessels could be entirely powered by wind energy, or is this just a supplementary energy source? I, I think it would be supplementary. You're always going to need sprint, and, and the, the, the sprint will probably come from... Um, conventional energy types, although we are looking at the idea of uh, potentially into the future hydrogen type power cells. And um, once again, going back to the idea of offshore renewables, you know, one of the concepts there is to actually have the whole capacity to create green hydrogen, which could be done from the ocean. So you're actually converting the ocean into hydrogen, which is green, and that could give you a propulsion vector. Wow, that's exciting. Uh, I've also heard that the Defence Forces have solar photovoltaic panels on 50% of your military installations. Over 50%, in Over yeah. 50%. And we're, we've, we've got plans to actually increase that, not just solar, but also looking at heat and we're also looking at um, uh, wind. So the, we're, we're doing, in fact, we've been to the forefront, I think, in terms of our whole drive in terms of energy efficiency. We were the first in the world to actually um, adopt the ISO 50001 standard in 2012. And we, we, we've been reassessed on uh, 2012, 2015, 2017 and 2020. So we're to the forefront and uh, the head of our engineering department, uh, Jim Burke, is really very much involved with the European Defence Agency in terms of uh, bringing his knowledge to play, not just in from the Irish point of view, but in the broader uh, community of military families in Europe. You and your troops have been on the front lines of a lot of tragic rescues in the Mediterranean uh, with respect to refugees trying to flee war-torn places like Syria. And I've heard you talk about climate change as a a vector in causing instability. How much of a role do you think the Defence Forces will play in the future with respect to addressing the climate crisis? Yeah, well, right now we're in 14 missions in 13 countries and very much involved in terms of trying to bring stability and safe and secure environments for very vulnerable populations. But there's no doubt uh, climate change, climate breakdown, biodiversity loss are actually driving security issues. And up to recently, I think the last in when Germany was on the Security Council, they were driving this agenda item. And I know Ireland is picking it up now as it sits on the Security Council. But coming back to the, the, I suppose, the pointed end, there is no doubt a regular migration is driven by climate change, climate breakdown, greater competition for resources. If you take Mali at the moment, where we have two missions in Manosma, which is um, with the UN and the European training mission uh, in Bamako, which uh, also with Europe, uh, we have two sets of troops down there. And what, in particular, our Army Ranger Wing are seeing in the area of Gao in, in northern Mali is a whole area of, of conflict, which is often driven by the impact of climate change, whereby you have greater increased challenges between, I suppose, traditional nomadic um, type Fulani herders and the more settled uh, farmers like the Dogan. And what happens is extremist arm elements, you know, aside up with both communities and there's greater friction and as as resources become more challenged these this friction becomes more of a point of conflict and there have been some serious tragedies there we're doing our best working with the UN to bring that stability there but areas such as the tri-border between Mali between Burkina Faso and between Niger are really a tragedy and the difficulty for us if we if we don't deal with these kind of root causes of insecurity it forces irregular migration. Irregular migration then arrives in terms of problems like we've seen in the Mediterranean. Over the last uh, four or five years, 
the Defence Force, in particular Naval Service, have rescued over... They've contributed to the rescue of nearly 23,000 people, either directly rescuing about 17 to 18,000 or actually supported the rescue of others where they were put on other ships and brought to safety. This is something that is, is, is going to be featured in the future because climate change continues to be a vector of concern. And when you couple that with biodiversity loss, you can have resource degradation, you have increasing uh, desertification in terms of growing areas of arid or um, I suppose, barren areas. And then, of course, you have the problem with with population increase. Population increase is a concern from the point of view, if you look at Africa as a continent in particular, probably the continent most impacted by, by climate breakdown and yet the least responsible. And it it may well see population increase up to double by 2050 or 2055. You mentioned the Security Council and it's very exciting that Ireland has a seat on it now. And also John Kerry has been appointed in the, to represent the US on the Security Council. Does this give you hope that we might solve the climate crisis? Yeah, well, I, I, it is, I, I met John Kerry in Cork a number of years ago. And, um, Minister Coveney was hosting an event for small island development states. Uh, and it was part of our, our, our move towards the the bid for the seat on the Security Council. He's such an impressive individual. He has such an understanding in terms of the impact of climate change. At the end of the day, you know, the dealing with climate change is not going to be a sectoral issue. It's going to be dealt with through collaboration, through multilateralism. You know, no one actor has all the answers. It's the collective that have the answers. And I would look back at, you know, the, the major extinction events of the last millennia, you know, you can say one thing, dinosaurs or reptiles were not responsible for extinction. They didn't know what was going to happen, and even if they did, they couldn't do anything about it. We are responsible. The Anthropocene is responsible for the climate breakdown we have at the moment. We are responsible for the impact of biodiversity loss. But we have the wherewithal in terms of our intellectual capacity and the technology I spoke about to make a difference. But we can only do that if, as a collective, not as individuals, not as individual states in competition, so multilateralism is a principle and multilateralism is the principle on which we engage with the Security Council. So I'm hoping that, that climate change, climate security will become an issue in terms of Security Council. My thanks to Vice Admiral Mark Mellet for this edition of My Green Life. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening and thanks to my producer, Alex Rousseau, for this episode of Down to Earth. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the series on podcast at Newstalk.com and on the Newstalk app. Next week, we'll be working up an appetite to discuss the future of food. But until then, stay curious.